Warning, binge mode contains adult content. That's right. If your evil doppelganger has ever made love to another evil doppelganger voraciously, then maybe uh, you'll be fine to listen to this pod. But if not, if that's not something you're interested in, evil doppelgangers making out, please check out one of the other podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why we're dancing in our tent. (laughs) Talk about something to save your commentary for. Please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. Nobody else is going to die. Not for me. For you? You think Mad-Eye died for you? You think George took that curse for you? You may be the chosen one, mate. This is a whole lot bigger than that. It's always been bigger than that. Welcome to Binge Road Harry Potter. Oh! I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website, y'all. The website that produced the stars of Ice to Ice. Ice to Ice, <laughs> one of the greatest musical acts of the last two weeks. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Joining me today, now that he's finished telling me never to let him give me a haircut. <laughs> Left a little in the back there. It's fine. <laughs> it's Ringer Senior Creative and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, you don't need a nice haircut to listen to Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not the Snatchers can smell your eau de parfum through your various enchantments, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to debate the sanitary merits of sticking a toothbrush in your ear hole. I'm going to say not great. (laughs) Not a lot of merits to that. (laughs) Not a lot. Also, why don't you head over to ringer.com slash shop to check out our new binge mode merch. Wonderful for camping in any climate. Any. Any. Mm. Flexible roadwear. Love it. Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we concluded part one of our Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows book binge Mm. by exploring how choice shapes chapters 23 through 25 of the seventh book in J.K. Rowling's Sacred Saga. And on today's episode, we're diving into the film adaptation of the first part of the book. 2010's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one. The first book in the film franchise to be Mm -hmm. split into two movies. So lots to discuss here. Requisite. Spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While the first Hallows movie is today's primary focus, we will be going deep, as deep. Jason said. <laughs> deep in the locket. On details from all seven books and ten films, including Fantastic Beasts and the wider Potter canon. Mm. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we meet Auntie Muriel. Tough hang. So grab your favorite jeans and your rucksack, too. Uh-huh. Because it's time to do some camping. Mel, mom used to read those to me as a kid. 
The Wizard in the Hopping Pot, Babbity Rabbity and her cackling stump. Come on, Babbity Rabbity? No? <laughs> well, in that case, let's offer up a very brief refresher on what actually happened in the first Hallows film by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of Plot the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! With Dumbledore dead, Voldemort's reign of terror grows. And thanks to some confidential information from Snape... The Dark Lord and his followers intercept the Order of the Phoenix's attempt to spirit Harry safely away from Privet Drive. In the midair battle that ensues, Hedwig, struck by a killing curse as she tries to defend Harry. Mad-Eye Moody dies as well, and Harry's wand acts of its own accord to save its owner from Voldemort. Phoenix song for Hedwig and Mad-Eye Moody. The remaining group convenes at the burrow, which now has protective charms, unlike in Half-Blood Prince. (laughs) 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 Where Harry, Ron, and Hermione are to remain, at least until Bill and Fleur's wedding. In the interim, Minister of Magic Rufus Scrimgeour arrives to read certain sections of Dumbledore's will and give Ron the Deluminator, Hermione a copy of The Tales of Beetle the Bard, and Harry the first snitch he ever caught. Scrimgeour also reveals... Dumbledore bequeathed the sword of Gryffindor to Harry, but says that it was not Dumbledore's to give away. And what's more, nobody knows where the thing is. It's just gone. At the wedding reception, Harry learns disquieting news about Dumbledore's past, but the evening is interrupted by a warning from Kingsley Shacklebolt in Patronus form. The Death Eaters have overrun the ministry. Scrimgeour is dead, and they're coming to crash the party. Harry, Ron, and Hermione escape via apparition, but they're quickly cornered in a London cafe where they defeat two Death Eaters in battle and decide to travel to Grimmauld Place for safety. In the Black family home, the trio makes a shocking discovery. R.A.B. is Regulus Arcturus Black, Sirius's younger brother and a former Death Eater, who stole the real locket from the cave. Thanks to help from Creature, who apparently in Movieland didn't play any part in Regulus's theft of the locket. And from Dung Fletch, they learn that the locket is now in the possession of an old friend. By that, we mean mortal enemy. Dolores Umbridge. To get the Horcrux, Harry, Ron, and Hermione break into the Ministry of Magic, and after a series of polyjuice potion-aided hijinks, Harry stuns Dolores, takes the locket, and flees. But in their escape, Death Eater Yaxley causes an apparition malfunction, and Ron is horrifyingly splinched. Taking turns... To carry the mood-altering locket horcrux around their necks, they begin a long period of camping across the country, and Ron grows increasingly disgruntled, eventually leaving the group after a towering row. Yes. Because he doesn't think Harry knows what he's doing. So Harry's taking walks with Hermione. What's up with that? Where's that coming from? What indeed. (laughs) Now on their own, Harry and Hermione travel to Godric's Hollow, where Harry's parents were killed. But there's a trap! (laughs) Nagini lies in wait. In Bethilda's corpse. And then they escape to the forest of Dean. Harry's wand is broken in the process. The good news, though, is that Ron returns with the help of the Deluminator. And just in time, he saves Harry from drowning after the Chosen One follows a mysterious silver doe Patronus to a lake that happens to contain the Sword of Gryffindor. Ron stabs the locket with the sword and another Horcrux is destroyed. But not before we see Harry and Hermione. Fuck. The trio then travels to Xenophilius Lovegood's house, where they learn about the titular Deathly Hallows, three objects that, when united, 
make the possessor master of death. Can't wait to talk about hot Xenophilius Logan. <laughs> Same. <laughs> These include the unbeatable Elder Wand, the Resurrection Stone, and the Cloak of Invisibility. Problem is, it's another trap. <laughs> And they once again narrowly escape the Death Eater's clutches, only to apparate straight into a group of Snatchers who figure out their new identities and take them to Malfoy Manor to summon the Dark Lord. But now Dobby comes to the rescue and Harry wrestles away Draco's wand before leaving the house. But a quite precise knife throw by Bellatrix Lestrange kills the Dobster as he's apparating them to safety, a free elf making one last heroic sacrifice. Phoenix Song! Ugh. For Dobby. Harry buries Dobby by hand, and miles away, mm. Voldemort breaks into Dumbledore's tomb to retrieve the Elder Wand. Jason? Yes. One hears many things, my lord. Wow, do tell. Whether the truth is among them is not clear. Like Peter Pettigrew's fate in this movie. <laughs> if you'd like to hear us discuss every beat of the first half of the Deathly Hallows plot, we encourage you to please check out the nine episodes that we've already posted on the book. An excellent book. Fabulous. Today, we're going to focus on the film as both an adaptation and a standalone work by handing out some superlatives and house points. We're dishing out seven awards because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Number one, the big idea. Yes. Casualties. Casualties in a literal sense. People dying. Creatures dying. Casualties to ways of life, to ideals, mm -hmm. to trust in people like Dumbledore. The casualties that struck me the hardest, I think, right away was the idea of this frayed trust. When Harry, after the Seven Potters battle, appears at the burrow, Lupin grabs him around the neck. Mm-hmm. Gives that whole scene. Who who are you? Prove who you are. Harry has to do it. Similar scene unfolds when Kingsley arrives. You know, these are people who feel a great deal of warmth to each other. And the danger of circumstances has caused them to really treat each other with this standoffishness, this really aggressive mistrust where you have to prove at every moment who you are. Right. Well, the function of that scene is very successfully conveyed in the sense that We've always felt the cost of war in these stories through Harry's perspective yeah. and to see right away the effect that it's having on everybody else's lives, right. all these other characters that we've grown to love and trust yes. over the course of, obviously, the books and the film franchise. And when they rise up into the air and all of a yeah. sudden they're surrounded, and because of the pace and the action-driven nature yeah. of the sequence in the film, you don't really have time to process what went wrong there or how that happened, right? right? And, of course, you've seen the conversation with Snape and yeah. Voldemort, but you're not thinking logically. And so that moment when Lupin confronts Harry is the first time where you actually pause and think, oh, my God, did someone turn here? Like, yeah. is the trust between the members of the Order of the Phoenix, which is really the thing holding the wizarding world together, actually fractured? And, of course, the answer is no. They all trust each other still. They're going to fight for each other still. But just that seed of doubt about whether it could ever break or even just the fact that, forget the idea of it breaking, that they have to question it, that they can't be sure that the people who they've decided to wage battle mm. with are actually those people. It sets up so nicely then the 
smaller but ultimately more emotionally impactful version of that, which is the fractured relationship within the trio, which is one of the emotional through lines of the film. Then, of course, there's the actual cost in lives. We can talk about Charity Burbage, whose hideous murder really underlines in stark terms the cost of this war. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely horrific to watch what happens to her. This is a scene that gave me chills, man, when I yeah. first saw this movie. Just so well wrought, a really good adaption of a scene that is quite chilling in the books as well, to see Voldemort there arrayed in power mm-hmm. with his sycophants all around him, just so eager to please him, taking so much pleasure in the fact that he's torturing someone who's not them. Right. His ire is focused somewhere else. And also the tension because they understand how quickly that focus and that ire can target someone mm-hmm. is really chilling. I'm glad, you know, speaking of the Seven Potters battle, one of the things I really love about the movies, for some reason it's hard for me to picture, is the way the wizarding world, like, coexists with the muggle world. So to see that battle happen with the cityscape below them really underlines this idea of, you know, it's not just the wizarding world that's going through this. Mm -hmm. This is going to impact the muggle world. There's going to be casualties in the muggle world. I mean, there's numerous cars are wrecked in this chase as Harry and Hagrid are fleeing these Death Eaters. There's going to be collateral damage and people that we don't even know about are going to be affected by this. That's an interesting point because I... I always get hung up on that aspect of it because, and this is true for all the times that the movies for the sake of basically placing you in London or somewhere visibly recognizable in England or drawing that clear and palpable connection to the muggles just violates the laws of the world. Like, what are they going to do? Is the statute of secrecy just over now after that? Like, that part of it I get hung up on. But more thematically in terms of what you're saying, it's, it's certainly effective. I mean— Even before that battle, we see, you know, Hermione, the scene where she has to modify her parents' memory. And we see, again, the cost, not just literally of lives lost, but to a way of life and to what those sacrifices demand of everybody who is willing to give them. And then to think about why they're willing to give them. They're doing it for each other. They're doing it for Harry, but they're also doing it for a cause that they believe in. And that idea, I think, is very effectively portrayed in the film tonally throughout the entire movie. And that's one of the reasons that it's, I think, my favorite of these films is you never forget that they are fighting for something. Yes. But every moment that they're working toward that, you have to think about what they're losing to get there. There's a great I have this as one of my favorite lines. Hermione and Harry on the run. Ron has left them. And Hermione is kind of lamenting where they are. Mm -hmm. They've just arrived at the Forest of Dean. And Hermione says, maybe we should just stay here, Harry. Grow old. That's a beautiful moment. You know, one of the casualties here is not just, this sounds trite, but like not just their childhood, but this privilege to live a normal life Mm -hmm. as normal people who could incredibly hope to have a family and have relationships and get a job. That stuff is gone. It's irrevocably gone. It's a point where something as simple as just staying in one place and growing old is what Hermione wants in that moment, and they just can't have it. Uh, That's such a good point. And especially because in some ways, Harry has never had access to that. And that, of course, is part of what they're working toward, is being able to secure and build a world where he and all of them could have that and could actually believe that it was possible for them. And in that moment that you're citing, it feels maybe less possible than ever. And it's just agonizing. Obviously, some of the other more literal casualties in this film are 
among the most devastating in the series. You know, Hedwig Ugh. is crushing. The Seven Potter sequence, that escape, we lose Hedwig and Mad-Eye Moody in that sequence. We don't see Mad-Eye's death the way that we do Hedwig's. We learn about it later from Bill. But those are two titans in this story. Yeah. And Deathly Hallows is particularly wrenching because the deaths in the series to this point, obviously the series starts with loss Mm -hmm. with Harry's parents. And then Goblet builds toward Cedric's death. Order builds toward Sirius's death. Obviously, Half-Blood Prince builds toward Dumbledore's death. And with Hallows, it's immediate. It's instant. And it's constant and unrelenting. There's never a moment in either of the films or in the book where you allow yourself to believe for more than the span of a few moments or a few chapters that you might not lose somebody you care about. You know, Hedwig is one of the very first companions that Harry obtained when he entered the wizarding world, been with him by his side since the beginning. And I think, you know, anyone who has a animal companion. Yeah. It's a very special. Understands the relationship. People talk about the way an animal gives you love in a certain way. And I think there's this idea of the love as kind of being without any strings attached. And I'm not, I don't think that's true all the time. And a relationship with an animal is very much a relationship where you feel their moods. You know, like I, when Milton is kind of annoyed at me, I feel it. I understand why he's annoyed at me. I understand that he is. He wants more of this. He wants more of that. He wants me around more. Hedwig was very much that way. Oh, yeah. And that rung true in a really heartfelt way. She would get annoyed at Harry when he wasn't paying attention to her, when he wasn't letting her eat, as I have (laughs) gone on about at length. Let her have the frog, Harry. Yeah, when he would speak crossly to her. But she always gave. Mm -hmm. She was always there to give and support him and, and carry out the tasks that she was there to do. And she did it to the very end. Yeah, she was an essential... Essential. Essential aspect of his life and helped him access the wizarding world and thus his sense of self. I mean, you know, when he finds out that he's a wizard, obviously it's from Hagrid and the trip into Diagon Alley is literally, and this is obviously post his parents' death. We're not accounting for the first year of his life. That's his first literal trip into the wizarding world. But who comes back from that trip with him? Hedwig. You know, she is his first connection to this new phase of his life, to the true life that he didn't know that he was meant to lead and to live. And she's with him every step of the way. And it's just devastating. And part of what is so crushing about it is there's no time to mourn. It's again, you have to move on. The pace of not just of the film for us as viewers, but for Harry of what is happening around him in that instant. They're literally fighting for their lives. And that is, you know, it reminds me a lot of Game of Thrones spoiler warning here if you're not current on Game of Thrones. Summer's death with Bran needing in that moment to just keep moving. And that is is almost as agonizing as the loss itself is the absence of the period where you can properly grieve and to think about the impact that that would have on any of us in life. It's a great point. And another thing with Hedwig is just how dependable she was. I think that there's a type of loss that strikes when it occurs with a person or a creature that is so embedded in your life that they're like part of the landscape. You just can't imagine them not being there, like a mountain or something. You look up and and there it is. Hedwig was like that, just so dependable. And for her to just be gone, it unmoors the story in a way that's really heart-wrenching because that bit of landscape, that mountain, that dependable thing is just erased in a way that can't 
ever be fixed. It's brutal. So sad. And then Moody's death serves a very different function. Yeah. Harry and Moody don't have that emotional bond that Harry and Hedwig had. But Moody is a symbol. Yes. For Harry and Ron and Hermione. This legend in his realm, this iconic, fabled warrior who is a mountain in his own right. And if he can fall, then how are they supposed to survive? You know, it's truly terrifying on the brink, not only of the wider battle, but of their particular fight. Not a lot of minutes in the film pass between Moody dying and all of a sudden Harry, Ron, and Hermione being on their own. And that, of course, is deliberate. You're still thinking about, well, okay, if one of the greatest horrors of all time was killed, then— how are three teenagers, you know, even three teenagers who are as precocious and prodigiously skilled and brave and gifted as the people that we love, how are they supposed to survive? And then when you see immediately that they're found in this cafe, it's just is this kind of unrelenting surge of terror for them. That is wonderful. I think that one of the casualties that I was thinking about watching this and with Moody and with Grindelwald is the past. Mm-hmm. The war is moving into this phase that is so ruthless and so savage in a way that is beyond what anybody is prepared for, that it's wiping away all these markers of the past. Grindelwald, the previous most feared dark wizard who once brought the wizarding world to a level of terror previously unseen, erased by Voldemort's thirst for power. In a moment, Moody, the greatest Auror that anybody has ever seen, one of the most, perhaps the most experienced Auror of the story, killed in a way that seems so random and so capricious. Right. And specifically the nature of his death. Okay. This is dung apparatus. And what is the point of that storytelling choice? To remind you how even somebody as gifted as that has to depend on other people. And so that gets back to the idea you raised earlier about trust. And if you can't trust the person around you, and if just the person next to you letting you down for one instant is the difference between you crossing the veil, then that is not only terrifying, but like existentially devastating in a way that can really never be Repaired. This war is so ruthless and savage that we have to depend on the bravery, the courage, and the talent of these children. We're so ensconced in this story that we sometimes forget, like, Dumbledore is asking for these three kids to put everything on their shoulders and face the greatest threat that this world has ever seen. And that is a tragedy. And the reason that that has to occur is because— the level of violence and darkness is just devouring everything that came before. It's a great point. Very Last Jedi yes. kill the past-esque. Yeah. Even, let's say, Malfoy Manor, yeah. where all of the adults of note in Voldemort's camp, other than Voldemort himself, yeah. are there. Yeah. And who do they turn to for the information that they need? Draco. Yeah. You need to confirm. This is yeah. on you to decide and determine when the Death Eaters get on the Hogwarts Express. And that's another moment that I had as a casualty, just that instant when you realize yeah. that Harry isn't there. that he, yeah. And you know, rationally, of course, you're with him. Yeah. But to see the juxtaposition of the children who are, yeah. it just crystallizes everything. Okay, well, that was his last chance to board yeah. that train, and he's never going to do it again. And that part of his life, childhood, is over. And then who stands up to the Death Eaters who board? Neville. Yeah. You know, another boy who has 
found his courage and found his bravery. And it's it's just, it's amazing. Well, one of the themes that we like to talk about with Thrones in particular is the sins of the father. Mm-hmm. And do we punish the child for the sins of that person's family? And this is what's happening to these kids on, whether it's Draco, whether it's Harry and Hermione and Ron, they are paying the cost of the sins of the past. And it's really brutal and really tense. I think that one of the reasons that sensation is maybe exacerbated in the film is that Dumbledore's shadow does not hang over the Deathly Hallows movies nearly as much as it does the books. Nearly as much. And we'll obviously talk about that more throughout the podcast. But still, to the extent that that storyline is present, that is obviously a casualty as well. And it, it really... We get, you know, glimpses of the, the Daily Prophet here and there. But it really begins in the film with Harry's conversation at the wedding, mm. initially with Doge that turns into his conversation with Auntie Muriel, who does not get nearly enough dunks in in the film. Let her just <laughs> let her dunk. flex for 30 minutes and call everyone an omelet and talk about how she's 107. Anyway, again, this is obviously greatly condensed. And then there are far fewer moments, both before and more notably after, where Harry is really lost in his frustration and resentment and despair over his fractured vision and understanding of who he thought Dumbledore was. But there are still, and again, starts with this moment, chipping away at that trust and at that vision that Harry and thus film viewers had of who Dumbledore was and what Dumbledore represented. And if that trust and that belief and that certainty, if it shrinks at all, then what fills that space. It has to be Harry and Ron and Hermione. It has to be them. Bill and Fleur's wedding, another casualty. And in a more meta sense, we're really losing a way of life. As Hermione says, the ability to stay here and grow old. Here is a moment that should be the greatest day of these two people's lives. And it's torn apart by fear. It's not a great omen. Is that correct? Yeah. You know what's moment I really love in that scene? (sighs) When it's obvious, it's instant chaos. Yeah. Everyone is very afraid, running in every direction, trying to find each other, trying to flee. And, you know, Ron and Hermione are running toward each other. And Harry is running after Ginny. And he shouts her name. And that's his instinct is that moment is this is a person I love. I want to make sure she's safe. And Lupin stops him. That moment when Lupin grabs him and just looks at him and shouts, go. And it's the right decision. It's what Lupin had to do. It's what Harry should have known to do. But it's a reminder, a very effective one, of the choices that everybody in this war has to make every time. And that moral and emotional calculus. Do you want to protect the person that you love or do you need to try to save yourself? Because if you're Harry, saving yourself means maybe being able to save the world. And in three seconds in the movie, that's conveyed, I think, very effectively. Yeah. It's almost like this war has given Harry the permission to be selfish in a way that is just against his nature. He wants to protect other people, not himself, but he has to now. Mm -hmm. He has to safeguard his own person now because that is vital. And it's so against Everything he stands for to do that, to leave everyone behind and run, rabbit on your own, just get out of here. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. And especially on the heels of that brief exchange that Harry and Ginny have earlier, where she says, seems silly, doesn't it? A wedding. Yeah. Given everything that's going on. me up, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) But Harry's response to that line is 
a classic idea. Maybe yeah. that's the best reason to have it because of everything that. that's going on. And amid the fear, the yeah. creeping fear and doubt that only grows from here, the characters have to hold on to that idea that there's actually something worth fighting for and worth trying to protect because otherwise, what is the point of any of it? There's a line in No Country for Old Men, both the book and the movie, that I love, and it's uh, the main character is recounting a dream he had where he's traveling through some mountains at night and he's carrying a fire and a horn. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he knows he has to keep that fire going mm-hmm. as he travels. And it's much like what you were just talking about. You know, maybe that's the best reason to do it. The best reason to do it is because you need to keep those bonds alive. You need to keep that spark of life and love and warmth alive. You can't let it be extinguished by everything that's going around you. That That is as important as fighting the Dark Lord in a duel or fighting the Death Eaters or, right. or you know, resisting evil. That is keeping goodness alive on a fundamental level that's really important. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Ministry of Magic. Oh, man. Tough days for the Ministry of Magic. Now, the Ministry was hardly ever actually the temple of tolerance that the thickness and Voldemort's other stooges in their hostile takeover pretend that it had once been. Of course, the Ministry was always deeply Mm -hmm. flawed. And we see, you know, less of that in the films than in the books, particularly because Scrimgeour's character is not introduced in the sixth film, and so we don't get He's a one-and-a-half-dimensional character. Right, and the, the thing that's so effective about his earlier arrival in the story in the books is that when you get past Fudge, who's a doofus, a buffoon, and Umbridge, who is pure, unfiltered evil. And you get to Scrimgeour, a man who actually is well-intentioned but just still can't quite get there. That's the most effective moment to say, oh, this is why this apparatus is failing. This is why Harry and the Ministry can never work together. So we don't quite have as much history to call upon here. But still, when you see the magic is might sign and you see the crushed, crumpled muggles holding up the throne, and you start to hear about the blood status investigations and the gutting moment where we see Mary's interrogation and her explaining, imploring them to believe that her wand chose her. You know, we talked about this when we were discussing this moment in the books, but the idea that this moment in your life that solidifies who you are, Mm -hmm. that you are as special as someone had just told you. And you don't have to doubt it because you can doubt words, but you can't doubt that feeling in your hand, right, when your wand chooses you. And to have that called into question for an entire segment of the population is agonizing. And the government, the structure of society is not fighting to protect it because it is, in fact, part of the thing, thanks to Voldemort, working to tear it down. Yeah, I thought those scenes were quite effective as circumscribed as they are. There's something about seeing them there in the halls of the ministry with its smooth marble and those impressive statues You can feel the way that power is embodied by that place. And it feels irresistible. It really, the contrast is quite effective where you're thinking, man, it's three kids against this power structure that will be there for the next 100, 200, 1,000 years. How can they ever defeat this now that it's been taken over? And I think it's a great kind of meta-commentary on the way that, you know, power exists in the world and can be corrupted. And when it's 
given form that way, it's just especially hard to eradicate because it's when it's given form and structure, it's almost imperceptible in the way that it affects your life and the world. You almost don't know where to start in dismantling it because you can't destroy it. You have to kind of steer it and steering it is like trying to turn a battleship. It moves so slowly that you feel like nothing's happening. But then when it gets momentum, it's impossible to stop. That's great. They leave the ministry Mm -hmm. with the locket. And one of the sequences that I really enjoy is the trio's first attempt to try to kill the locket. Yeah, I love that too. And not saying this with any mockery or scorn, the moment where your first thought is, let's take out our wands. Let's fire a spell or two at it. Let's see what happens. And we talk about this a lot in the book pods, but how Dumbledore used to praise Harry for sometimes just trying the most obvious thing first, right? Start where you can, where you know how. And of course, it doesn't work. And as Harry is just walking, charging toward it, firing spell after spell after spell after spell, and then the camera zooms in on the locket and it is untouched. It might as well have been in protective casing. It is so unharmed by that relentless surge of fire. And they don't know what to try next. They have no idea. And Harry has never been a character who is all-knowing. That's, of course, part of his charm and appeal to so many people is that he's so relatable. He's just a kid trying his best to make a difference and to win. And right now, They have arrived at a moment collectively where they have no idea how to try to make that happen. None. And part of the reason is because Dumbledore didn't give Harry enough information to move on. And this is really where you start to see for the first time Harry's doubt and frustration taking over. There were plenty of moments in the prior films where he didn't know exactly how to do, Mm -hmm. where he was afraid and unsure. But he always just trusted something internal and instinctual to get him through. And right here, he seems defeated. And obviously that will grow throughout the ensuing scenes as Ron begins to pull that scab back and twist his finger in it. He has the line here about Dumbledore not telling Harry enough. And then he says, doesn't that bother you? And would we love every single second of the Dumbledore-Harry doubt story to be in the movie? Of course. But that pretty effectively condenses it. Because the answer, of course, is that it does bother Harry. It bothers him deeply. And once that seed of doubt is embedded in his soul, Mm -hmm. it takes over not only how he feels about Dumbledore, but how he feels about himself and his own ability. And that that is a casualty that has the potential to be damaging beyond repair. Because if Harry doesn't trust his own ability, who will? Who can? And if they don't have trust in each other and in their capacity to actually win, then they won't because that's part of the message of the story is that you do have to believe in yourself and you have to trust that you can do it. And then if other people are trusting you too, that that is something worth embracing and that in embracing it, you can realize it. It's a wonderful summation of why the break between Ron and Harry and Hermione is so gut-wrenching because when somebody has faith in you and they believe in you, it's inspiring and intoxicating and it's a great feeling. And when that goes away, it's very hard. It's really hard because when you think that you have an understanding with someone and it turns out you don't, 
when they see you in a different way, when they think that, oh, I thought you had this relationship with Dumbledore that clearly you didn't. Right. That's really hard. And how quickly that turns into, oh, I thought you had this relationship with Dumbledore that you didn't too. Oh, I thought we had this relationship with each other. Right. That maybe we don't. And the through line of the entire story, the backbone on which not only the tale, but Harry's ability to walk through it and navigate it is built is his friendship with Ron and Hermione. And to watch that fall apart temporarily, thank God, but to watch it fall apart is astonishingly painful and sad. It really is. And, you know, we're going to talk about all of that a a lot more throughout the podcast. Guess what we're going to talk about in our teen angst and romance (laughs) category this week, folks. But that bond is the force that propels everything. And... The idea that it could fracture even for a moment, it does fundamentally alter something about how you view the characters and what you think is possible Mm -hmm. in the world. And ultimately, the reconciliation after that, it makes it all even more powerful, of course, because it doesn't erase the fact that it happened. Like, it's very important that Hermione doesn't immediately just forgive Ron, that these things linger, and then that even after there is, you know, that surface-level reconciliation, you understand that something something elemental has shifted between them. And, again, the power of it is it's not in a way that makes them weaker. It's a way that makes them stronger because that was tested, and ultimately they survived that test. But the fact that they survive it doesn't diminish how gutting the test was. The threat to it is, I mean, it's existential because if there's a primary casualty in this film, it is their friendship. The threat to their friendship feels like a threat to everything we know about this story. Right. And that's why it's so effective. When Ron and Harry fight during the first task in Goblet of Fire, the things that fuel that are... Again, deeply human and relatable and understandable, but ultimately smaller in scale. Jealousy. You know, why why didn't you tell me you were putting your name in the Goblet of Fire? Why didn't I get a chance? Why am I always, always, always second best? And that fear of always being second best is still fueling Ron's decision-making here. You know, we see when the Horcrux comes to life to torment him, that that is the doubt and the anxiety that it preys upon, that his mother would rather have Harry as a son, that Hermione would rather have Harry as a lover. But ultimately, for the Triwizard Tournament, Harry had Hermione, a school full of teachers who could help him and structure in his life. And right now, there's nothing. The structure is is a crucial point. Yes. Because that rift, as you stated, was much more minor compared to this one. But... Also, it was contained within the structure, within Hogwarts, within the framework of them being students. They're going to have this argument, but also you're going to see Ron every day. There's going to be an opportunity every day, every morning, every afternoon to repair that breach. When Ron walks away, Mm -hmm. it feels as if there may not be another opportunity to repair that. Yeah, the line in the book is something had broken between them. And that's never how Harry had felt before. Because ultimately, the circumstances and the context in any moment in our life, that changes the impact of the choices that we make. So 
right now, Harry is literally trying to stay alive. And he was in the Triwizard Tournament, too, sure. But he's trying to beat Voldemort. He's trying to find Horcruxes. And he has no one and nothing else. It's him, Hermione, and Ron. That's it. They only have each other. And to walk away from that, to make the choice to say, I don't care enough about this or about helping you. And that's how it feels to Harry. That's obviously not how... Ron actually feels yeah. and he will come back and explain to them that the locket affected him more than the others. He obviously had suffered a grievous injury. He is tormented by the idea that Hermione might not want him. But at the end of the day, when your best friend who has sworn to stay by you no matter what says never mind, yeah. that does change something forever. There's also an, a quite affecting theme here. You'll find, I'm sure that our listeners have found this, you find as you get older, you leave school, you leave college, you go into the workforce, you go on with your life. It becomes harder and harder to make friends Mm -hmm. because there's just less people cycling through your life. You're in a room with less people. You're going on and trying to accomplish your own goals. And I think the break between Harry, Ron, and Hermione really lays that out in a really, really interesting way. As you get older, it just becomes harder to make, to forge those bonds with people. And let's say as Harry moves on with his life past 19 years later, is he ever going to make friends in the way that he made friends with Ron and Hermione? Right. No, right? No, of course no. not. Right. That's a precious thing. It's precious. Absolutely. To, to, to hold on to that. And it's also across the timeline. So it's not just the impact on the future. It's much the same, actually, even though they're very different circumstances, but what Harry's feeling about Dumbledore makes him not only doubt what he knows about the future, but it makes him question what he thought yeah. was true about the past. And that's the same with what happens between him and Ron. It's not just, all right, well, like, what, am I ever going to find a best friend again? This is probably mm-hmm. it for me. It's, well, this was one of the truest things I thought I had in my life. Yeah. One of the only things that I never had to question. And was any of it real? Yeah. And once you start to reassess the own circumstances of your life in that way, you really lose a grasp on your own sense of self and your own humanity. And that's not something that Harry can afford to lose. Conversely, though, when the trio reunites and they are then not only back together, but back to pursuing interactions with other people, we start to get, again, that contrast. Okay, we can believe in this thing again, but can we trust anyone else? So the idea of someone like Xenophilius, Hot Zeno. Hot Zeno! (laughs) Who they seek out for aid. Somebody who has been a champion of Harry and his cause to this point. A father to Luna, one of their dearest friends. Mm. And... It's a trap and they are betrayed. Okay, Ron literally puts this into words when he says, is there no one we can trust? Yeah. And that's a pretty scary thing to have to wonder because especially on the heels of another casualty, which is Harry's wand at this point, his wand has snapped. How are they supposed to fight this battle if they don't have any of the tools that they need? And so, again, the fact that they're back together and can rely on each other now again makes that more precious than ever. But it also exacerbates how little they have that in any other area, or at least how it feels that way to them right now. And, of course, there is Dobby's death. Mm. One of the most gutting losses in the series, it is... A tragedy that almost defies comprehension. And it represents to Harry, though, as we'll discuss later, this is harder to convey in the movies when Dobby has not been there since Chamber of Secrets. You don't have the full rich history of their friendship. But that was one of the friendships that Harry could count on. Somebody who was willing to prioritize trying to keep Harry alive over 
anything else, someone who was willing to fight not only for his own freedom and independence, but to make the choices that would keep Harry safe. And Dobby represents something so pure, just the desire to be able to act with independence and free will, to make decisions, to rule your own life instead of having somebody rule it for you. And then once you have that power, once you have the power and dominion of your own life, that you can then try to help other people. And that's what Dobby does with Harry. And it's just it's just devastating. Luna sums it up in the book, I think, with yes. the perfect statement. It's not fair. Yeah. It's just, it's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair at all. I think one of the first things you learn as a child about the world is that it's not fair. Yeah. And I think that feeling of injustice when you're confronted with it never really goes away. Yeah. It's just not fair what happened to Dobby. It's not fair at all. The amount that he went through and his journey from servitude to freedom for it to end that way is appallingly unfair, which is why it's just one of the most devastating, if not the most devastating, deaths in the series. It's just crushing. It kills you. It's so unfair what happens to him. It's juxtaposed mm. with the scene of Voldemort infiltrating Dumbledore's tomb and disturbing the sanctity and peace of death in order to gain the Elder Wand. And all you can really hold on to in your devastation over Dobby's loss is the beauty and tranquility of his final resting place and that Harry was able to give him that. It's very sad. It's very sad. Uh, Okay. Number two. Best book to movie change and worst book to movie change. I did this a little differently this time. I went in chronological order because I I always find myself saying, the worst one, no, the worst one, the best, no, the best. And I thought, let's just go in order here. Best one. This is obviously just a delight. Cat Stark is Hermione's mom. <laughs> I love. I loved seeing her. Look great. Look great. Delightful. It's totally delightful. I just love seeing Michelle Fairley in stuff where she's not tortured by pain and loss. Yes. It's wonderful to just see her sitting on a couch watching television, being obliviated <laughs> by her. Yeah, by her daughter. Seven her daughter removed from her mind. A certain amount of peace for her. I I want that for her. Do you notice that? Uh, playing Hermione's dad kind of looks like how you'd imagine Ron looking as an adult. You've imagined Ron as an adult. <laughs> I love adult Juan Juan from Cursed Child. <laughs> Truly one of my faves. The very, very funny moment in that. I mean, that sequence is, I think, actually quite emotionally charged, and I really like the way the film does that. Yeah. But there is that hysterical moment where as Hermione fades from the photographs, one of the pictures just then becomes a bed. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, why would you have this framed? <sighs> But I do like, because in the book, mm-hmm. the scene with Voldemort at Malfoy Manor, that's the opening chapter, the Dark Lord ascending. And it's one of the moments where we're not seeing something through Harry's perspective or with a different set of people. We're not in Harry's mind. And it's, especially after the way Half-Blood Prince ends, like very effectively jarring to not get to immediately see how Harry's doing, to yeah. just realize the extent of the terror that Voldemort is unleashing. I like that the movie does it the other way, though. I like that the film opens with the mashup smash cuts of Harry, Ron, and Hermione each saying goodbye to something in their life because you need that note, again, to understand that casualty. I think it just positions you then to be even more afraid when you're in Malfoy Manor with Voldemort 
because you understand what they've given up in order yeah. to try to stop him. And then you see how strong he is. And for whatever reason, I just like that slight repositioning of the order in which we get that. I agree. It's a casting off of their previous lives as we transition into the potential for this dark new world that is truly horrifying. Yeah, it, it's something about it immediately clarifies the stakes. Not that yeah. seeing Voldemort murdering a teacher of Muggle studies doesn't immediately clarify the stakes. It certainly does. But for the viewer, the stakes are always going to feel strongest when you understand them through the trio's perspective. And yeah, so I, mean, I, when, I think that's effective. I mean, when you have to send away your family and not just send them away, but send them away in a way that they no longer remember you, that's a loneliness that I think is really hard to grapple with. Yes. Speaking of a loneliness that's hard to grapple oh. with, losing a pet. And I think we both agree on this. A hundred percent. One of the best changes, and this might be a controversial opinion, I'm not really sure, the nature and manner of Hedwig's death. So in the book, she's in her cage, you know, pinned between Harry's legs as he's in the sidecar, and she's hit and dies in the cage. And then in the ensuing sequence of events, the sidecar, the bike is disintegrating and breaking away and falling, and Harry has to explode the sidecar yeah. as it's falling in order to try to take out a nearby Death Eater. And Hedwig's death in the book is absolutely crushing. So this comment this pick doesn't in any way diminish how effective it is in the book. And I think that one of the arguments you can make about why the book version is most effective is because that is utterly tragic. Right. That in a moment where you have no control over your own circumstances, you die anyway. Yeah. But seeing Hedwig in full flight in yeah. the movie, seeing her fight for Harry and sacrifice herself for Harry, it just feels right. Yeah, That is the way you want to. You don't want to lose her. But if you have to, I think that those circumstances absolutely allowed the essence of what she was to shine through. She just gave, again, with her last moments in the story, gave something to Harry once again at the cost of her life. And just, you know, there's something elemental about just seeing a bird in a cage versus a bird on the wing. You know what I mean? She died flying. And especially given how often throughout the story— her lack of access to flight and free yeah. flight is a point of emphasis. You know, yes. I can't let you out because of the Dursleys. It's like yeah. something about just seeing her wings stretched wide in her final moments is really beautiful. And as awful as it is to think that in any way, you know, maybe not the most elegantly handled and stated thing in the film when it's basically like, they knew it was me because of Hedwig. Yeah. But... There is something really beautiful about the idea that there could be no doubt in the Death Eater's mind who the real Harry was because of Hedwig's love for him and because of the idea that she tried to protect him. That's just really lovely. Yeah. Next, in chronological order, Harry being Harry at the wedding. And more specifically, Harry being himself more throughout the story. Now, some of this is just the practical nature of making a yeah. movie. You know, Harry is in disguise or under his invisibility cloak so often yeah. in the book that, like, you're not going to not have Daniel Radcliffe in I the know, movie. He's, like, literally wouldn't be in 40% of the movie if you did that. Right. And I, I don't like it in the Godric's Hollow scene the way he says, this is where I was born, I'm not returning as someone else, because then it's like, is that just shade at the <laughs> I book know, right? Like, because you did go with someone else in the book? That always sat kind of oddly with me. But so the reason I like it at the wedding is because that feels like the most natural place to make that choice, mm. where 
Do we need Barney Weasley? I know, right? Shouts to, I'm going to just take a moment to shout out my dude, Elphias Dogbreath Doge, <laughs> the Wizarding World Steve Bannon. He was wearing four collared shirts. <laughs> yeah. His shirt had four individual <laughs> collars. One other thing about Harry being himself more yes. often, obviously the ministry sequence requires them to impersonate other people. And it's great to see the adult actors who all look like just grown-up versions of them, kind of. But the moment when Harry turns back into himself to yeah. confront Umbridge, you know, that doesn't happen in the book. He's in disguise as Runcorn until they flee. I mean, to the last moment, he's using the fact that he is Runcorn to try to deflect attention away from them. Seeing him turn into Harry to tell Umbridge, must not tell lies, and to know that she knows that he got her. It's just very no, satisfying. satisfying. It's so yeah. satisfying. You know, it's like I'm reminded of Lady Oletta. Tell Cersei it was me. It's great. You want, with a character like Umbridge, you need her to know yeah. it was Harry. I want her to know it was me. Uh, one other change that I like is Ron... I want to be clear, I don't like the fact that Ron did this, but I like the, the difference here. Ron using Harry's parents' death as a weapon, rather than it just being something he forgot. That was tough. <laughs> yeah, this is just good character work. Yes. That is really the moment where you're like, oh, this is maybe over the, yeah, between this is them. The, the savagery of it. These are the kind of things you do not say right. to a friend. Ever. Ever. And especially not with the deliberate intention of wounding them with it, which is what Ron is doing here. And it's it's awful, but in that awfulness, it's extremely effective. And I think ultimately more effective, certainly in the film, than if Ron says, it's all right for you too, isn't it, with your parents safely out of the way, and Harry has to say, my parents are dead, then it pulls you out of the emotional like thrump of the scene because you're pausing to say, wait a minute, did Ron really forget that Harry's parents are dead? Like, you have the time in the book to sort of process that kind of comment and think about how his distraction and his own personal yeah. state would lead him to say something like that. In the film, it just has to happen quickly in that scene. Every line has to land like a dagger, and I think it, in that sense it Rupert does. Rupert Grant is great in this movie. Also looking a little thick, looking a little thicker. What happened in this movie? It's great. It's Working great. out. Very pro all of the trio in this movie. <laughs> it's it's great. I have one final one, but I want to save it for last for the best. Do you have others you want to I want to talk. I want to specifically before we get to the last to the best. All these I agree with, things that I think were the best as well. I'm gonna go with Resiphons as hot Xenophilius <laughs> Lovegood. It changes Luna's character in a really interesting way to discover that her dad looks like the guitar player for David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust band. Like, <laughs> it changes the dynamic in a way that's quite interesting. And I've, I've kind of forgotten about it. But And when you see Reese Ivan show up, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's not how I pictured Xenophilia's love good at all. I mean... He's not described, like, super charitably, physically in the no. book. You know, I'm sure he looks great, but Muriel compares him to an omelet. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely does not look like an omelet. No, he looks great. Though, yeah. again, I, I ride with Luna on the sun colors. Yeah, I think I, it really does change. It changes the dynamic. Listen, if any of you have ever had, like, a, a gone through an issue growing up in high school and college where your friends meet one of your parents and then remark, 
how attractive that parent is. That's a weird thing that happens sometimes. It just alters film Luna's character in a way that I think is really interesting. (laughs) I love the way he says Luna. Yeah, Luna. Luna. It's great. It's great. Okay. Next. No one else in the binge mode family, not you, not Zach Cram, not Isaac Lee. No one agrees with me, but I am prepared to ride hard. Literally hard. For the Harry Hermione tent dance. Tent dance scene. I please make your case. Love this scene. It is obviously not in the books at all. And I just think it's great. Let me attempt to explain why. Okay. So this is after Ron has left. And Harry and Hermione are both despondent. Harry has lost his best friend. Hermione and Ron are falling in love with each other, are in love with each other, and have not fully realized that or vocalized that to each other. But they're in it together. And so she has lost her love. And Harry and Hermione are not really speaking. They're just awash in despair. And... The wireless, which plays a key role in the film, is it's pumping. It's pumping out the tunes. It is pumping out the jams. <laughs> and Harry goes over to Hermione and puts out his hands and extends them to her. And she takes them and they stand. Mm. And there are a few extremely charged moments where you don't know what's going to happen. It's where charged. you are genuinely like... Are they going to fuck now? And then they dance. And they just dance like kids. And they wiggle and wobble and move their arms around and let out the tension and laugh for a minute. And then the song stops and they break away and they both look utterly miserable again. Here's why I love it. (laughs) First of all, I have always been a fervent Hermione Ron shipper. I want to be extremely clear about that. Always. Okay. But I think it's nice to throw the Harry Hermione shippers, of whom there are many, a bone. I think that's I actually th- like that. Yeah. Okay. They get a moment where they're like, oh, this is what this would have looked like. And not just the two of them running through the Forbidden Forest holding hands in Prisoner of Azkaban. Like the sexual tension between Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson in that scene is considerable. I believe now this is, I'm not sure if this is canon, but in real life, we do suspect that they were together at this point in time. You know, I don't know. There definitely were a lot of articles around this point in time about they spotted at dinner, you know, kind of a thing. It's maybe not canon. It crackles between them in that moment. And two young people, quite quite attractive. Two young people who are sad and afraid and alone and just want to feel connected to another person. And so that is ultimately what I like about the dance scene is it is a reminder that there are many forms, many shapes and forms of human connection and that friendship can ultimately be as powerful as anything else. And just that moment where they both need to feel close to another person. Hermione doesn't have Ron. Harry doesn't have Ginny. They just want some connection, some real proximity to another beating heart. And for like a few minutes, 
it revives their spirit. Mm. And I think that's really lovely. And then I think it's just as important that when they break away from each other, they like, they're, back they're to- miserable again. Because that's real, too, is that letting yourself feel something good in a moment doesn't erase everything that's bad. And so I just think it's a really emotionally impactful and resonant scene. It's also just cute. It's cute. It's like they just want to be happy for a minute and feel some sort of closeness to another person. I really like it. Now, here's what I'll say. There are people in the binge mode team that hate this scene. I quite hyperbolically in Slack said the scene is awful. I don't believe that. I'm trying to do a thing where when I don't necessarily agree with the thing, I don't then state that it's the worst thing that ever happened. I'm trying to do that less. Mm -hmm. I understand why the scene exists. Mm -hmm. I understand what it's meant to do. It doesn't quite work for me, but I don't find it like appalling or objectionable in a certain way. I agree with you in that it is quite interesting and actually quite a human thing Mm -hmm. when with Ron out of the picture that Harry and Hermione seeking comfort in each other would in fits and starts perhaps explore whether that wound could be salved by engaging with each other in whatever way that means. But so, and that ultimately is one of the things I think is good about the scene, though, is that I think the people watching it are wondering that. I don't think the characters are thinking that in terms of of sexual nature. Well, I'm not saying sexual, but just like finding comfort in literally touching each other. Yes, just relieving the tension in your life for a moment. And the other thing about it that I think is very sweet is Harry clearly wants to comfort Hermione. And Hermione has given him so much, and she stood by him. When Ron says, are you coming with me? You know, she stays. And he wants to repay that in a way, however small. I think it's an interesting scene in terms of what it's meant to do. I do think it's obviously a bone to the Harry mm-hmm. Hermione shippers. For me, it doesn't quite land because, so Ron has left. They've had this row. Ron has essentially accused Hermione of picking Harry over him as he leaves. I think that if you're Hermione, understanding the way Ron views your relationship with Harry, Mm -hmm. I think there's no way to approach the dance, even knowing within yourself what it means, Mm -hmm. being quite sure that this is not the beginning of a relationship or a dalliance or anything like that. This is two people taking comfort in each other in a very, very trying time right Mm -hmm. now in this moment. means nothing else. Mm -hmm. means nothing larger than that. I think there's no way for Hermione, though, Aside all that, to dance with Harry without knowing on some level that if Ron saw this, <laughs> he would be shattered, absolutely shattered. And it is in a way, I'm not calling it cheating or anything like that, but it is a kind of emotional cheating in the sense that mm. you're doing something that you understand Ron would misunderstand and actually be Hurt by. I'm glad you said this because I want to debate that point. Okay. I don't agree. You don't agree no, that No, I agree would, Ron would be hurt, yeah. but I don't agree that that's a reason not to do it. And I think, in fact, that's part of the point is that there are all sorts of ways of having a really meaningful connection to somebody and of loving a person. You know, Harry and Hermione, they do love each other, right? And Ron actually has to accept and understand that. Like, does he? <laughs> <laughs> he saw them walking close to each other with their hands kind of close to each other, coming back from some area well, of the I, woods. I hate that. 
that's a movie choice that I don't like at all because I have this on my worst changes list. We can just skip ahead to that. The moment in the book when Ron says, I get it, you, you choose, choose him, him is perfect. It expertly and fully expresses every doubt and anxiety that he's carrying. And for Ron in the movie to just basically be like, I thought you were fucking in the woods is just so inelegant and unsubtle. And like that bums me out. But it's part of the same discussion and consideration here. It's like, I guess I just think there's room for a little more nuance. I I agree with you. (laughs) Here's the thing. Maybe I'm not making my point as elegantly as I should. I'm not saying that Hermione should not dance with Harry in that moment if it gives her comfort and gives him comfort in a really trying and dangerous time. Nor am I saying that she is somehow wronging Ron in any real way. Mm -hmm. I'm merely saying that it's absolutely logical to assume that Hermione would understand that Ron would feel a type of way about what is occurring there. Ron's not there. I know Ron's not there. (laughs) But do we not keep the people we care about in our hearts? He walked away from her and all she's looking for, like she just sways around for two minutes with a friend and then sits down and is unhappy again and full of regret. This is very much like, well, we were on hiatus at that point. Conversation. But they didn't do anything wrong. I agree on the merits. <laughs> I'm simply saying that a relationship is not one perspective, it's multiple perspectives. And from the perspective exactly, of. Exactly, which is why Ron has to accept the fact that Harry and Hermione have a bond. Does he? <laughs> <laughs> agree to disagree forever. <laughs> Worst book to movie changes. This is a broader one across the whole film, but. It just feels really rushed how many new characters were introduced to or characters returned to us. So we meet Scrimgeour. We meet Bill Weasley. We meet Mundungus. Obviously, Dobby comes back to us after not having been in the film since Chamber of Secrets. Now, I would argue that this is not this movie's fault. I 100% agree. Sins of the prior films. And so I think that's actually, again, part of the reason that this movie is, I think, my favorite is that certainly there are flaws in the film, but many of them, not all of them, but many of them stem from... This movie had no choice yes. because it just has to account for the decisions that have been made prior. And I think those, oh, here's Bill Weasley, who you should have known since Gobble to Fire moments are a part of that. Another one? Sure. Not getting the full Harry Dursley farewell is tough. Now, they did, yeah. uh, did film it, deleted scene, but just a great moment with Harry and Dudley. Really, really lament not getting to, to see that. I don't think your waste of space is a... Fabulous moment, and I wish we had gotten to see it in the Let film. Let me give a quick one here. No no sign in magical graffiti at the Potter House in Godric's Hollow. You don't really get the feeling that the wizarding world holds the Potters in this really special esteem for what they accomplished at the cost of their lives. And I thought that was something that could have been easily included that wasn't. Yes, I have a lot in that area. I can skip ahead from my chronologically ordered I'm sorry, I apologize. To, uh, to hit those other ones. In general, I think that the Godric's Hollow sequence is really effective the Bethilda aspect of it certainly but there are a string of changes that do just hurt given how pitch perfect that sequence is in the books you know we already talked about Harry saying that he's not going to use the disguise to go there when the fact that they are in disguise is like essential in the book very tough the absence of the messages that you just mentioned also the absence of the war memorial you know the statue where you just see Lily and James and Harry together forever in stone in a way that they never got to be in life. That's just a really lovely thing. Not seeing Kendra and Ariana's grave really bums me out. Now, of course, that is in 
essence Completely, entirely yeah, missing from totally the movie. Gone. And that is a much larger lament, but you feel it right there in the graveyard. No discussion of the inscription on James and Lily's grave, that, yeah, that, that key funny. line. Inscriptions in general missing. No, uh, It's there. It's yeah. on the grave, but they don't talk about it and you can barely see it. No Dobby is, inscription. No Harry. In that Godric's Hollow thing still, also no Voldemort. Yeah. He doesn't come, and then we don't get the key sequence of seeing the entire night that he tried to kill Harry as a baby play out through his eyes. That's a that's a massive thing to not have. Very tough. Speaking of Voldemort, hmm. I don't like him, like, spelling out in great detail why he needs to borrow a wand. Talking about how he and Harry have twin wands. I don't love it either. I think it's— Too on the nose, and it's not information he would share. It is one of those moments where I'm like, okay, I understand structurally why they feel the need to do this, but it just felt— so inelegant. Is that not a conversation you could have with Ollivander or some other right, way? Well, you know, like yeah, that's what that's it, how it is in the book. Is exa- he tells exactly. his followers he needs to borrow one but doesn't explain why, right. and then we see him questioning Ollivander about right. the specifics. He would never say, "Here's a weakness I have." Exactly. This is why I need to do this. Right. He would never say that. No. We talked about why we like the n- nature of the Hedwig death scene. You know what I miss is right before it. We don't get. Harry and Hedwig really like saying goodbye to Privet yeah. Drive together. It's I just love that. In such the a book beautiful is... sequence. And there's nothing wrong in the movie. I just miss having that. I think that would have been really nice to see. And we do get Harry looking at his cupboard. And if he could just have been talking to Hedwig, you know, you didn't know me then. It's just that would have been really lovely. Obviously, no Vic the Dick. Love Vic. Which is tough. Tough for my guy, Vic the Dick. Would have been great not only to see the character again, to play up the romantic tension between Ron and Hermione by having Victor emerge again as a threat, but also that gives us the idea of the Deathly Hallows as Grindelwald's sign and how the symbol of the Deathly Hallows can mean different things to different people, which we don't have in the film at all, absent that. When they get to Grimald Place, there are three pretty big changes from the book, all of which bum me out because they're just perfect in the book. Mm -hmm. Harry does not find Lily's letter. Yeah, that's, it's unfortunate. The letter in the book is described as an incredible treasure, and it is, and it's just not here, and that is really sad. And then in that same stretch of the story, Creature's Tale is altered beyond recognition. We don't get the redemption. Yeah. Not only do we not get the backstory and the full mythology of understanding who Regulus was, who Creature really was, and what he's been through, and the idea of how someone in Voldemort's own camp turned against him, all of that, returning to the cave in our minds, everything about that that's so effective. But in the big picture macro sense, we don't get Creature's redemption. We don't understand the horror that he suffered or how he could be the way he is. And we also don't have any of the history about really Harry and Creature's relationship because in the film, Harry doesn't inherit him. Creature is then not sent to Hogwarts. None of that transpires. So Harry's just really mean to him. That's a thing that really stuck in my craw about Creature's introduction into this movie. Harry is so rough with him. Yeah. Like when he's trying to get the locket. And that is antithetical to everything we know about Harry Potter and his treatment of quote unquote lesser creatures, lesser in terms of how the wizarding world writ large kind of views house elves and and non-human magical beings. And that then, was unfortunate. Yeah. And it just is against everything we know about Harry. And and even for as pure and good-hearted and well-intentioned as his nature was already, yeah. in that scene in the book, he still has so much more to learn. Yeah. And to see him at the end try so hard to display compassion toward creature is yeah. is really moving and we we just don't get any of that and then again in that Grimwald play sequence before they go to the ministry Lupin doesn't come yeah. we don't get the Harry Lupin fight we then will not later get the resolution both of which you know those bookend moments are just so 
emotionally impactful. It's a punch to the gut, and then it's like a light in your heart when you realize that Lupin has not only forgiven Harry, but that Harry's words, as harsh and hard as they were, kind of helped Lupin find the path again. And because of what Lupin represents as a character, you know, this person that we trust fully and believe in and someone who has taught Harry and us so much, you know, taught Harry how to conjure a Patronus to find that secret self. And when you see that that person has so much uncertainty and terror about his own life, it's just really powerful. So I really miss that. I have one that you don't have on your list. So Dobby's death on the beach in front of Shell Cottage, he's in Harry's arms saying, Harry Potter, still speaking, his eyes open, still life in his small body. Harry is cradling him and saying, do something. Hermione, help, do something. And Hermione crumples to her knees and basically is like, well, he's dead. There's no urgency. There's no get the Ditney. Dobby is still talking, you guys. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, when Ron was splinched, it was like, oh, my God, we got to do something. They basically surrendered Dobby to his fate. Now, yes, he was mortally wounded. Fine. You're not a doctor, Hermione. Can we try? Like, can we just try to do something? They don't even try. I think they're just overcome with their emotion. He's still— Dobby is still— been tortured. But Dobby is still like, Harry Potter. I will say— And nobody is trying to get help or anything. So I will say that— it's a fair point. I will view that less as a failure of the characters and more as a failure of the filmmakers yeah, yeah. to put the characters in that position yeah. in the first place. Speaking of Dobby's death, no headstone. That was tough. Harry not carving. I mean, that's a, such a perfect Dobby a free such elf. a perfect statement. Crushing. Yeah. Earlier in the movie, when Harry ports through Voldemort's mind and sees him going to Grigorovich's wand shop, we see not only once but twice the sign of the Deathly Hallows at Grigorovich's wand shop. We see it out front. And then we see it inside, kind of like a diagram. That's insane. I can't overstate how ludicrous of a choice that is. The point of the Deathly Hallows is that very, 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 very few people know about them. And the juxtaposition of how many people, it's still a small number, but how many more people know about the wand and just are drawn to the idea of the power, the obvious power of that, without understanding or even being aware of the wider lore and these other objects is imperative to the end game that Harry can believe that Voldemort knew about the wand, but not about the other Hallows. Well, he fucking walked right by the sign twice. Yeah. What is that? That really bothers me. And then Harry actually mentions it later. Oh, I saw that at Gorbachev's watch. What? Why? No one has seen this. You bring up just basic, like, storytelling things. I think this film is quite effective, even if some of the causality that exists in the book is really fuzzy here. For instance, Pettigrew, we mentioned. We don't know what happens to him. Right. So Pettigrew comes downstairs after Dobby's arrival. Dobby gets Luna to safety. And as he's apparating out, he tells Harry, meet me at the top of the Uh stairs in 10 seconds. Pettigrew comes down the stairs. He's standing at the gate of the basement. And all of a sudden, he's stunned and or something from behind and Uh kind of says, uh, oh, and then collapses. And then disappears from the story. It's unclear whether or not Dobby maybe murdered him? I don't think he did. <laughs> it's unclear. But I don't, we don't, and that's exactly the thing. I guess we just don't know. Another example well, of this. But it's not just, it's not just not understanding what is present. It's right. the absence. 
the way that his death plays out in the book. It closes a circle. That has been there since Prisoner yes. of Azkaban. And that's hard to take that being gone. Closing the loop on the life debt that he owes to Harry. Another kind of example of this, where this wonderfully wrought circle of J.K. Rowling's kind of like the trademark of her storycraft, which is to craft these huge loops that close at moments that you are not expecting them to close. You didn't even know it was a loop. The arc stretches across so many books. Another example of this is the Snatchers just find Harry and Ron and Hermione, like yeah. no taboo. No they taboo just kind of, the they appearance. just kind of like stumble across them and it's not really Weird. explained how. Another example of this, again, there's no Phineas portrait. So, we yes. are no, we don't actually understand how Snape won, right? Got the sword into the lake, understanding that that lake would be the lake that they are near. Mm-hmm. Found them in general, right? Now I think that, I just miss Phineas in general too. I, He's- I, same. <laughs> I know. I think that it's a credit to Yates and the filmmakers and the actors that all that works with just basically emotional beats carrying mm-hmm. through these structural issues. Yes. Um. But it is, there is so much that's fuzzy here in terms of what's happening. How did people know what and when and how are they at a place? Yeah. I do think that's Strange. that's very true of this film more than some of the others. Once, yes. the, once the books get longer and there have to be all of these changes and compressions, there are just as many, well, not just as many because they made two movies, but there are still a ton of changes, a ton of omissions, a ton of compressions and tweaks. What is in there better captures the essence of the story. I think think that's really a credit to them. Some of the other films. And it's also, uh, you know, also our three main actors are just kind of at the top of their game at this point. They just know what they're doing. They've created these characters, lived in them for a number of years and are just able to inhabit them in a way that feels absolutely authentic and real. Totally. A couple more rapid fire. Yeah, Yeah. This is a big one. On the return from Godric's Hollow and Bathilda's, yeah. Hermione has the book. She has Rita's book, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, but they don't read it. They don't, they read, don't it read it. We get a glimpse of the photo, and then Hermione will spot the sign of the Deathly Hallows in the— Can't miss it. In the A in Albus. <laughs> you can't miss it, by the way. In Beetle, it's you can't giant. miss it in Beetle. It's like someone wrote it in with a, a thick point yeah. sharpie. And then she spots, oh, this is the same symbol for my book in, in his signature here. We got to go talk to Zeno. This must be important. But they don't read the chapter. So Harry is not learning any of this backstory about Dumbledore and Grindelwald among the most essential things that we ever learn about any character in the story. Like, I, I don't think that's an overstatement that what we learn about Dumbledore's backstory in the Deathly Hallows book, the choices that he made as a boy, his friendship with Grindelwald, yeah. his pull toward the dark, his lust for the hallows, his belief, temporary though it was, in the greater good, everything that then that led to with Ariana and his family and loss and regret and how that shaped the rest of his life. That is just absent from this film. Pivoting off that, Grindelwald telling Voldemort, quote, the Elder Wand lies with him, of course, buried in the earth, Dumbledore. Brutal. That's a bad one. How does he know that? Well, he would know that Dumbledore had it because Dumbledore But be- he would know that it was how it's, glide with that him part, in the earth. Know. That part's that's a good question. But in King's Cross, when Harry and Dumbledore are sharing everything at last, Harry says to him, Grindelwald tried to stop Voldemort going after the wand. He lied, you know, pretended he never had it. I mean, this is just a complete, complete change. And one that I think 
stands to age increasingly poorly with time as we learn more and more about their backstory in the Fantastic Beast films. Okay. Some other quick ones. Harry just being like, my wand broke, okay? It's cool. <laughs> like know. the crippling fear and loss that takes over him in the book when that happens is really important because so much of his identity in this moment hinges on how he thinks his wand is more capable than he is. Yes. We don't get any of that here. Really miss the Luna bedroom visit oh, with that the, is so the touching. paintings yeah. of all of them and the word friends and really seeing how much that friendship has meant to her. Just really miss that. And how much it means to Harry to see that. Yeah, it's a beautiful moment. We don't get the delightful Arumpenhorn discussion, which... <laughs> We'll carry in our hearts always. Hot Zeno, a side effect of Hot Zeno is that I don't buy him as a Snorkat guy. <laughs> yeah, still a Gertie Root Infusion guy, though. Yeah, still a dirigible plums guy. <laughs> Grayback's reduced role, yeah. he really becomes the sidekick and Scabier becomes the lead. Yeah. And I just think that Grayback is such a terrifying, unnerving figure. Yeah. Maybe it's it would just have been harder to convey in the film in a way that didn't feel cartoony because so much of it is about, you know, for example, the way he smells. Yeah. You know, what Harry, the blood and He's sweat vile. and dirt that Harry can smell on him. And you can't convey that in a film and maybe they just felt it wouldn't have worked as well. But him not ever emerging in the movies is a, really a villain you have to take seriously. Is It's unfortunate because it, he uh, fills a role in the books that is really interesting. You know, all the Death Eaters obviously are murderers and vile people, but he is in it for the murder. And the torture and the blood. Like, he's specifically there for that. That's it. Never thought I'd say I want more Fenrir, but I guess that's where we are. Okay. Yeah. Number three, the Extremely Goblet of Fire. I love magic award for best use of, depiction of, or introduction of magical ability or item or place or thing. I think the Patronuses, particularly Kingsley's, mm -hmm. is really fascinating. I love the way it, Harry spots it off zooming down from the sky and then... It's almost like a video message. Yeah. Like there's scenes that are playing out within it yeah. that I thought was really cool to show that and to use it that way. Yeah, and, I and agree. We don't see the links, yeah. but to get that kind of like, here's your highlight reel of here's what what's happening. About. Yeah. And, you know, obviously in the books, we've seen Patronuses send messages before, but this is the first time in the movies we've seen Patronuses, but we had not previously seen Patronuses used to carry messages. Okay. This is the first time we get that, so it's really cool. I got a kick out of seeing the decoy detonators in the ministry when Harry uses them to yeah, it was cute. get into Umbridge's office. One of the things I like about it is they look so fully like toys, like yeah. joke shop items. And it really makes you think about the fact that these items that are just supposed to be for amusement, how astonishing and surreal it is that they became weapons of war. You know, that Fred and George end up with basically a military contract to create their wares for use in this battle. And you look at this thing and you're like, this is something a kid would use. It yeah. just really does crystallize how every single aspect of their lives in some way gets caught up in this war. This is really subtle, but I really like the moment when Harry and Hermione are inside the enchantments of their campsite and the Snatchers come by. Love that. And the camera goes, and you know, they're almost face to face. Uh -huh. And the camera kind of goes from Hermione's perspective, travels through the magical barrier, and there's this kind of sound effect and a little bit of visual distortion, and then swings around so that you're seeing from Scabier's point of view, and he sees nothing. Yeah. I love the visual representation of the way magic alters yes. the spatial dimension. I just really love that. I thought that was really cool. Although, 
Hermione needs to either go to a, a less pungent <laughs> perfume or figure out a way to uh, get an enchantment that also masks the perfume. My take on the perfume is they're at she the point in the story great. where they basically can only have like rancid mushrooms for dinner. You're probably like not she worried about perfume. <laughs> I also had that on my list, though. I love that. It's, yeah. It is such a cool visual representation of the way that magic works. Yeah. I really like the effect of the apparition distortion when yeah. Yaxley grabs Hermione as they're exiting (laughs) the ministry and you see how caught up in each other they are how the actual like biology and chemical breakdown of it how your molecules are almost like merging with each other it's creepy and then the way they kind of shoot up and the trees kind of elongate and pull you in from below the trees up into the forest it's just really cool Nagini Nagini emerging from Bethilda's moldering corpse. Really horrifying. horrifying. Really pulse-pounding action scene that I thought was really, really, really effective. Less in that sequence about how the room reeks of shit. There's some flies. But... The buzzing of flies, and we would assume maggots as well. (laughs) The way that's splinching? Oh, that was horrifying. Was rendered? I mean, that was gory. That was as gory as anything that's ever been displayed in a Harry Potter movie. Very violent. And then even the after effect of when Hermione is raising her hands to cast the protections and she's just covered in Ron's blood. Like, that looked incredible. Love when we finally see how the snitches, we learn about the snitches' flash memory and we get to see the words I open at the close and it's like the words appearing on the one ring after the ring has been pulled out of the fire and it's just chilling. I also liked the scene of Voldemort cracking open the tomb and acquiring the wand I thought was really well done. And just the way he, instead of a shower of sparks, there's this like godlike lightning that flies yeah. off into the sky. That was, I found myself feeling like, oh man, I, I can't wait to watch Deathly Hallows 2 now. Like that was a, that oh, was a yeah. great way to slingshot you into Deathly 2. Yeah, it's an incredible end note. Okay, number four, the He Was That Friend award. For the most effective snapshot of teen angst or romance, we've spent a lot of time discussing the emotional impact of these relationships and the fractured nature of the relationships in the film. But some of the key moments that really make you feel that love or lack of it in a certain Mm. moment. I find these two moments. One, when Ron looks at Hermione at the wedding when he sees her yeah. across the dance floor and then at Grimald Place when she's teaching him piano yeah. and there's that shot. It's a release by Beethoven. She's looking down at the keys and Ron is just looking at her. Rupert Grant just looks at her with such love in his eyes. I find those moments so lovely and touching. They're really beautiful. I really liked, I know we're going to disagree about this, but whether or not you feel like it served the story or served the characters, that moment when Ron sees them coming from somewhere in the forest, walking a little too close together, maybe for his liking, their hands seeming like they're lingering near each other after we get that scene in Grimald Place where you see Uh Ron and Hermione's hands lingering so close. It's a great little mirror image there. I really felt his distress and his inability to escape the negative feelings. I thought that was really well done. Slightly more comedic in nature would be Hermione's face when she sees Mary and Ron kissing after Reg turns back into Ron mid-kiss. It was pretty great. Classic moment. We also obviously get the perspective of real Reg approaching in his underwear saying, like, what the fuck is going on Ron really not fighting it off. 
He was going with it a little bit. He certainly was not like, stop, miss. Right. Yeah. But Hermione can't dance with Harry. Yeah. But Ron can make out with Mary. Making out with a woman. That makes sense. (laughs) There appeared to be tongue involved as well. Like passionate. (laughs) Passionate embrace. She had just uh, escaped the clutches of umbrage. Another great moment where you really feel the Ron Hermione love is Hermione's utter terror when Ron is splinched when he's hurt and he's convulsing on the ground and you really don't know like is Ron gonna die here this is it's a scary moment he's losing blood rapidly yeah. her she has to ask Harry to get the knee to unstop her the container because her hands are shaking so badly and you just feel how afraid she is for the person that she loves we both have this the locket I thought the locket was a really, really effective visual representation of just a person's self-doubts and their fears and the way a person can just really be abusive towards themselves when caught up in their feelings. I thought that was really well done, especially the way that Harry and Hermione were kind of like glossy, this, mm-hmm. these almost mm-hmm. glossy people that shined in a way that is almost like you could imagine Ron imagining Harry and Hermione together in that way where they just look, their skin looks almost perfectly glowing and light. They yeah. they look much in the same way that the book said they look more terrible. Like Hermione looked right. more, more terrible. More beautiful and yet more terrible. And, and yet more terrible. Yeah. That was a great representation of that idea. They yeah. Look, that entire sequence is basically just perfect. I will say that Harry does not implore Ron to kill the locket. He's it, like, let me watch a few more minutes like, of this. Hold on a second. Before you kill it, let me see if, how far we go. We look good. We look pretty good together, <laughs> don't we? And I think especially on the heels of, you know, right before Ron leaves, when he's saying things like, yeah, I'm still here, but you two carry on. Don't let me spoil the fun. And he's driven by the locket, but also by his actual very real feelings and concerns and the angst and fear are so palpable. And then when you see just the different face of that fear, when the locket is preying on all of his deepest insecurities, it's just such an effective contrast, something you're kind of inclined earlier to almost mock because he's being such a dick in the tent to them. And then in that moment, you really, you have such empathy for him because anybody in life who's ever felt that way or had those kinds of questions, does this person I love, love me back? Like, you know what that feels like and you're so on his side in that moment. And then when he's talking about the ball of light, it's like obviously deliberately corny. Like that's by design. And so it's very funny how cheesy it is. But there is that one really tender moment where he says, when he's explaining that he heard Hermione speak, and you know, what did I say? My name, just my name. I really like that. That's all he wants, right? To be the only one that she sees. And then his entire attempt to sort of get back in her good graces plays, I think, quite effectively comedian. The voting is, yeah. is very Hermione's good. Hermione's right. Yeah. The face that she makes at him after he raises his hand to vote is is really perfect. And obviously, Harry and Ron have their stuff, too. You know, Ron's Dumbledore shade at Harry is a knife to the heart by design, and it hits its mark, and it is hurtful. Great moment between Harry and Hermione when you see how the tension is affecting all of them. You know, Mm -hmm. the radio, the wireless is playing in the tent, and Harry sort of makes like he's going to stop him, and Hermione says, don't, it comforts him. And Harry says, it sets my teeth on edge. What's he expecting to hear? Good news. And Hermione's reply is just so perfect here. I think he just hopes he doesn't hear bad news. I think that moment really gets at the heart of not just the one-to-one, you know, Harry and Ron, or... Ron and Hermione, but the triangle of emotion between them and the tension that can be on any line there at any given time, but how one of the other ones can pull the other two back. 
Obviously, their fight is gutting. Don't expect me to be grateful just because now there's another damn thing we have to go find. The most savage line is probably, I just thought after all this time, we would have actually achieved something. I thought you knew what you were doing. But then the comedy of Harry later saying, just keep talking about that ball of light (laughs) really makes up for it. And of course, and of course, the tent dance. I ride for it forever. I will not apologize. That's fine. Number five. Sights and sounds, most notable hair, costume, score, CGI element, or visual, anything. What a visually arresting film. Really. We have a bunch of things here, but I think my two main ones are, and I think we both agree on this, The Tale of the Three Brothers is... Unbelievable. Is so much better than you could have imagined. Yes. Just beautifully wrought. Gorgeous. Wonderful. Everything about it is incredible. And then I thought that... Maybe the most visually stunning thing that has ever appeared in the films? I think so. And... Obviously, something so crucial to the plot and done in a way that enhances it, if anything, really takes it to another level, which, not to besmirch the movies at all, but anytime you can take something from the book and elevate it, that is a rare thing. And I think this is the one book element that you can point to without question that was elevated by the presentation in the films. Mm -hmm. Absolutely elevated. It's stunning. It and, is. And then I would say the use of Yates's use of landscapes throughout the film. Gorgeous. Both to enhance this feeling of isolation and being kind of arrayed against this vast landscape, I thought was really well done. You saw parts of the world that you never expect to see. There's this really interesting moment where they've decided to go on foot and they're walking through this abandoned like RV park. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that is not something you're used to seeing in a Harry Potter film, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was almost like a Western in the way that these main characters are arrayed against nature. Um, I loved it. And it obviously does its job in conveying instantly, with every vista that you see, they're just out in the wild. They're out in the wild. They are just blips on this vast swath of emptiness. It's incredible. A couple other quick ones. I thought Malfoy Manor looked pretty dope. It looked really, really dope. The Seven Potters transformation sequence is a delight. It was fun. Delight. The best moment, I think, is because it's obviously very funny when it's all of the Daniel Radcliffe's and they're speaking in the different characters' voices. We're identical. Yeah, that's <laughs> very funny. And Floor, you know, Daniel Radcliffe as Floor telling Domhnall Gleeson, you know, don't look at me, I'm hideous. Very funny. But I think quietly the best moment is before that when they're all taking the polyjuice and they're mid-transition and you see... The mid-Hermione-Harry yeah. mashup face. It's just really funny. Radcliffe, it makes me laugh. Radcliffe quietly yacked in this. He's well, cut. Well, this was, of course, Equus time. Equus time. Exactly. You got to get cut if you're going to be <laughs> naked on stage. So, uh, shouts to Radcliffe looking good in this one. I saw Equus in London. I know you did. Original run. You saw that, that donkey. <laughs> and then the actual... Seven Potters battle. I already explained that I don't Pulse like County, the yeah. overt nature of the violation of the statute of secrecy. But the moment when they rise up above the clouds and they are surrounded and it is terrifying, that is quite cool. I really like this is a small one. I really like the wedding outfits. Like it's weird, yeah. obviously, that they're not in robes, but I just think there's something so quirky and delightful about these like paisley blouses and plum vests that they're all wearing. I don't know. I liked it. I like the Undesirable Number 1 posters. Great. Like, people will buy this merch movie-making choice, which they're right. People would. Very effective use of the newspapers and also, newly in this film, the wireless to give us key updates. You know, they've always used the Daily Prophet in that way. You see a headline. You understand something that the movie doesn't have time to explore at length. You get quick snapshot 
compressed exposition. And the way that the wireless is used in this film yeah. to give you that is really great. You know, you can just hear as they're traveling. That sequence where they're yeah, traveling. Yeah, constantly just kind of chattering. And your list of names, yeah. all the deaths, all the loss. It just gives you this constant sense of how bad things really are. Even though the Silver Doe sequence is not nearly as, you know, long and we don't get to be in Harry's head and hearing his thoughts like we are in the book, it still looks beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, it is just such a beautiful sequence. And then the contrast right on the heels of that of Harry nearly dying in the pond, I think that whole sequence visually plays quite well. Yeah. We already talked about the locket coming to life, but we couldn't not mention that in best visuals, of course. That is just stunningly well done and the love, love good house pretty dope it's nice it's nice a little more ramshackle than i was expecting but it's nice cool spot it's a quite a great spot <laughs> sorry that it got destroyed tough stuff for our guy hot zeno hot zeno who <laughs> was don't le- sell our friends to the death eaters and then yeah and well he got that. left to his fate by our yeah. friends so that's a thing that that's, happens that's, that's tough, tough. <laughs> <laughs> number six yes best quote a lot of them in this one. A lot of good lines in this movie. My favorite I've already said. Maybe we should just stay here and grow old. That's an, Hermione. That's an incredible it's one. Just, uh, it's, what a tender moment. Those are, I mean, we discussed this when we discussed Order of the Phoenix, the book pods. The theme that I love that Rowling explores, one of the themes that I really love that she explores is the idea of the burdens placed on these young people at the cost of like their normal life. And when they grapple with that, in these moments where they realize that that is a thing that they are losing and they long for it is really affecting. That's one of the reasons I love Order so much because it's Harry just going, I want to just have a girlfriend. I want to just do normal stuff and I can't. I can't do it. The other thing that's great about that line in that moment is it doesn't come at the expense of you believing that they want to fight. Right. It's because you know how desperately they want to fight that something like that is so compelling. That's my favorite one. I like that one. It's a dark movie, so I appreciate the comedy. Love when they enter Privet Drive and Moody says, yeah, he's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say we get undercover before someone murders him. <laughs> Along those lines, when Dobby confronts his former masters and Bellatrix in Malfoy Manor, after dropping the chandelier, <laughs> Bellatrix is like, you tried to kill me. And Dobby says, Dobby never meant to kill Dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure. <laughs> Shades of Chamber of Secrets book Dobby there. Yeah, that's it's good crazy. stuff. Also, a perfect drive when Hagrid says to Harry, you know, very little Hagrid in the movie, and we get this touching moment. I brought you here 16 years ago when you were no bigger than a bow truckle. Yeah. It's very sweet thinking of Harry as a little bobby, a little baby. We don't get a lot of Scrimgeour in this movie, but I think the film is much more charitable to Scrimgeour as a figure. In the moments that we do get with him, he says to Harry... After giving out the will items, you can't fight this war on your own. He's too strong. That's a great one. I love that one. I do really miss the Harry Scrimgeour tension, I'm going to be honest. (laughs) But that's a great line. Love when Harry tries to leave the borough and Ron stops him, that whole exchange. When Harry says, nobody else is going to die, not for me. That just gets to the heart of everything that he's afraid of and wants to prevent. And then again, the comedy on the heels of that when Ron says, and leave Hermione, are you mad? We wouldn't last two days without her. I love that. Speaking of comedy, George appearing in the kitchen when Ginny and Harry are kissing and he says, morning. Great one. You are certain in that moment that Fred and George have fucked a lot. (laughs) Yes. Like, just certain. Yes. Certain. (gasps) 
love at the wedding when Luna says, come, dad. Harry doesn't want to talk to us now. He's just too polite to say so. Love those great Luna lines that make other people so uncomfortable, but are so pure and unfiltered and true. It's just fabulous. Another really funny moment is when Muriel says, Bathilda Bagshot. And Harry's like, who? Love a reminder that Harry just like never read his school books. <laughs> He's about to go try to take down Voldemort. And you're like, this guy hasn't read a book. I like yeah. that. Good stuff. Muriel also saying about Dumbledore. Honestly, my boy, are you sure you knew him at all? That gets right to the heart of that entire exchange. And lines like that in the movie carry even more weight because there is not a full exploration of Dumbledore's backstory. Love when Ron says to Dobby in the Grimald Place kitchen, wicked trainers. (laughs) I don't like that Dobby's still like wearing his like potato sack. Yeah, He should be in in sweaters. Hot Zeno looking at Harry after revealing that they have Luna and saying, but it's really you they want. Just something so chilling about that line reading, but also so crystallizing about the choices that all those other people have to make. Well, if you're supporting Harry and you know it's right and you really believe in it, what is the cost of that? What does that mean for you and everybody else in your life? When Harry pulls the mirror shard out of his sock in the Malfoy Manor cellar and Luna, just a great Luna movie, as always. That's a curious thing to keep in your sock. I just love that. Obviously, Dobby will always be there for Harry Potter. It's just a... It's beautiful. Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf, and Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. Had to have it. And then Dobby, at the end, such a beautiful place to be with friends. Yeah. Finally. Number seven. Who won the movie? Yeah. Hot Xenophilius? You know, truly, it's the animators of the Three Brothers sequence. Yes. This is, we agree on this. Absolutely incredible. Director of that animated tale, Ben Hibben, and Dale Newton, who is the sequence supervisor for Framestore, which is the visual effects studio that's responsible for a lot of the effects we've seen in the film. The hippogriffs, centaurs, house elves, et cetera, et cetera. This is just, it's just masterful. And it has continued to remain not only something that people cherish in the Potter lore, but it has sustained new storytelling at Wizarding World, where we had the privilege to go in Orlando, they put on a production and the puppets, the actual puppets are designed after this animation. So you're still seeing this animation and new aspects of the the very wide canon. It's great. I I love the way it combines this really ancient storytelling technique of puppetry with animation in a way that is so striking, really so striking. We love it. I would also say that, you know, we've already said this is probably the best movie collectively for the trio. I would give the win to all of them. I think they're all great, but really to Emma Watson. I think this is far and away. Her, she has her to carry best, a lot of emotional yeah, weight in this. Her best performance in any of these. And she she just has to hit so many different notes. And there's that she does. There's that moment when they um, disapparate to another area after leaving the campsite after Ron left. And she starts to break down and just turns away from Harry. I thought that was like, man, you got to hit that note. Yes. She needs the ferocity in the moments of action. She needs to be able to call the boys out on their bullshit. She needs to be able to express the longing that she carries and then also to have these moments of just such tenderness and gentleness where she's explaining not only what other people are thinking and feeling, but what she is. It's really lovely. Yeah. Any other winners? Dobby. Dobby, of course. The Dobster. Unfortunately, Voldemort. This film is in many ways a testament to his overpowering strength. And his investment in strength as a means for domination and control. You know, when he 
acquires that elder wand. It is a shattering and terrifying moment where you just absent any knowledge of the books or what comes next. If you're just a movie person, right. you're thinking, I don't know how they do this. Right. You don't have, if you haven't read the books, all the buildup yeah. for actually how he's making a real mistake. Right. There's it's none just, of that there. Oh, he has procured the ultimate weapon. Yeah. All right, friends. We've interrupted a deep thought, haven't we? We can see it growing smaller in your eyes. Before it vanishes completely, thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. They dance in the tent with us every day. We hope that you had as much fun as we did, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again soon for the beginning of our Deadly Hallows Part 2. Uh-oh. Bundle. Full scheduling details coming soon on the end of the Binge Mode Harry Potter run. So sad. I'm getting very sad. Until then, remember, we have seen your heart, and it is ours. We were better without you, happier without you. Who could look at you beside Harry Potter? Have you seen him in Equus, Ron? He's cut now. Not that there's anything wrong with this, Ron, but you're looking a little thick lately. And Harry, again, Harry, who is completely nude in Equus, laying that wood all around, has actual abs in this film. How could you stand next to him? Your mother confessed that she would have preferred me as a son when she saw me without my shirt on and when I was helping to zip Ginny's dress up after that manic lovemaking that we did, as I'm about to do with Hermione right now.